Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. But first today in his book, Finucane and Me, John Clark recalls his long relationship with broadcaster Marion Finucane. A relationship that was always tender, sometimes difficult, shadowed by guilt at the beginning and later by grief. Well, John wrote the book after Marion's death in 2020 and he's here today in studio. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Miriam. Delighted you're here. Before we talk about this book, which I greatly enjoyed... How are you doing? Well, I'm 87. I am a walking pill, is the (laughs) only thing I can tell you, you know. I have cancer, but they tell me I won't die from it, you know, uh, because I'm on some therapy, I can't tell you what the name of it is, where they use your own immune system. Mm. Die with cancer, but not of cancer. But I'm here. You're looking good, John. Yeah, well, I... I never thought I'd get to 30. I had a particular lifestyle that wasn't conducive to uh, longevity. I uh, smoked like a train, still do. Um, I'm planning on continuing to do so. This is not a plug for the tobacco companies, but it's uh, that's what, what I do. When I was walking across here today into the radio centre from where I work in television, I passed Marion's sculpture, which is quite beautiful. Yeah. How are you as a widower? How, how lonely are you post Marion and how are you doing in her absence? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I really don't, you know. If you live with someone for 40 years and share nearly everything, you know, uh, and suddenly it stops, you know, mm. uh, you're cast adrift. I wouldn't be sitting here. If she was still alive, I can tell you that. Uh, Secondly, I can tell you I wouldn't have written a book if she was still alive. So it just changed my whole life from the most simple things in the world to the most complex. I sat down about six months after she died and I said, I've got to do something that will occupy me until I die. I wasn't aware of cancer at that point. So I decided with a swamp out in the land I live on that I would build a Zen Buddhist garden based on a 16th century Japanese model. And he said, oh, you're building the garden for Marion. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm building it because of Marion. Because if I was to say to Marion when she retired and we all went off into the sunset, that I'm thinking of building a Zen Buddhist garden and it's going to take 40 years for phase one. Uh, she might have been ringing the men in the white coats, you know. So I do that. I wrote a book. Then I wrote it again because I wasn't fully happy with it, you know. Oh, yeah, I tell you why I wasn't happy with my... Children sort of objected it, and I'm fairly blunt in saying things, you know, and they thought, well, maybe I shouldn't say these things. So I rewrote it, and I felt much more comfortable with it. Um, Why did you write it, John? And do you think Marion, if she was sitting here with us now, would be surprised that you've written a book? Totally. 
if she was alive, I would never have written the book. She had this thing for secrecy. You mean, I know I've known you or mm. watched you or listened to you for a good few years mm. now. I don't know you from a hole in the wall, <laughs> you know. I would have thought the public were very much the same. With Marion, she went out of her way to protect her family, but actually it was to protect her uh, of whatever life she lived. Remind us of the first time you set eyes on Marion Finucane, the first time you met her. This I have now discovered is a point of contention. <laughs> My memory of meeting Marion was coming down. A friend of mine was Arthur Gibney of Stevenson Gibney, the architect. I was going to meet him. We were going for a drink. And I met this tall woman standing on the stairs. And she said, are you looking for the queer fella? And I said, I am. And a discussion just ensued. Uh, and she was a trainee architect or whatever in Stevenson Gibney. And I always thought that's where we met. I met this woman the other day in her 80s and she said, wasn't that very romantic, the way you and Marion met across a crowded room? <laughs> and I said, I have no bloody memory of meeting her across a crowded room. That was Marion's view. Mine is arguing about Mr. Hemingway on the steps of Stevenson and Gibney. And you were both very young. I think she was about 20 and you were about oh, 34. years old. Yeah. No, you were only 34. You were a young man, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. But age is always relative. So did you fall in love with her immediately? Well, I remember saying to my friend Gibney, I said, that's an interesting woman, you know. And... Uh, and he said, well, she's very standoffish, you know. Uh, so I said, that bit I don't know. But I, said, I thought in the few minutes I met her, she was a very interesting woman. We met again and again and again. And uh, I was married. Uh, Marion was in her own circle quite famous even at that point because she'd won the Irish Times debate and she should have won the Oxford but didn't. Uh, and so on. And she also, paradoxically, was one of the protesters in Stevens Green. Mm, when they were demolishing the beautiful Georgian Mile, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you were together then, but then you split up, didn't you? And I think yeah, well, you stayed in your marriage and Marion got married. But yeah. love dominated and you did get back together. I guess it was sort of inevitable. It was going to happen, you know. It was a question of when and how. And I had three kids and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, no matter what sort of a, a bounder I might be, as they call it, um, I did have responsibility for them. So I talked to my wife and said I was going to leave. But I was concerned about the kids. So we went to a psychiatrist first, she and I, and we said, OK, we're splitting up, but we don't want it to affect the children. What do we do? And it was all fairly solid advice. And by that stage, I'd bought a farm in the Midlands. So one was urban and one was rural. And uh, the boys came down at the weekend and went to Dublin school during the week. It was 
was the best arrangement, but it was a healthy arrangement, you know. Marriages break up, you know. This was the first one I'd been through, or in, and uh, it's new territory. Uh, I presume it's new for everybody. Uh, and it's very emotional, this chart, and that I suppose I was walking on cloud, whatever, with Marion, you know. And uh, we were exploring a whole, a whole series of different worlds, you know. The lovely thing is you had three sons from your first marriage. You're really close to them. Then you and Marion had a mm. boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, anyone who knows Marion knew that she lost her little girl to yeah. cancer, your little girl too. And it was something one never really, well, I felt I would never speak to Marion about it because yeah. it was one well, was so private. It yeah. was so painful. You write very movingly, John, in the book about Sinead. Did you find that difficult to do and why did you decide to do that? No. No. Mm. Um, Sinead's death was, from my perspective on Marion's, and Sinead's, of course, was a tragedy, you know. And she got uh, leukaemia. How old was she, John? Nine. Strange, for some bizarre reason, I was the only one that sort of matched her on a bone marrow transplant. So I just saw a bottom for a while, went into recovery, and suddenly it all swept back again. It used to move between one type and another type. On the way home once from Mayo, we we spent a lot of time down there, she said, I have that pain back in my leg again. And we knew that this was the return. So... uh, we straight into the kids' hospital in Harker Street at the time. And we sat down together. And I'd say we sat for about two days with Sinead. And we came to the decision that um, we wouldn't try it again. All the treatments. It was over. You know, all the torture, all the bullshit for nothing. So... I went to see the professor, you know, and said, we're not going ahead with this treatment. There's a 1% chance that she may survive it. But at that time, it was chemotherapy and all sorts of things. They weren't too sure how it worked, if it worked, and so on. And to subject a child who had already gone through all this terrible stuff, we didn't have the right to do it. We felt. And... uh, so we stopped the treatment. Um, and she took up life for us. And one day she wanted to be a barman. The local pub accommodated her. They had a special stool for Tushka Pull Pints. Uh, she got her wages at the end of the week. She learned to ride a pony. She learned to do all the normal things. As you watched her just sinking down, down, down. And then the hospice movement swung in. And uh, she died in my arms, strange enough. It was a bad time. Did you both deal with it differently, John? The book itself, you kind of imply that you did, that Marion simply could not talk about it. No, never recovered. And even to me, she had difficulty about it. 
We're all layered as people. We've depths and they go down, down, down. And low them, we don't know what they are or where they go or anything like that. And Sinead's death was somewhere deep in Marion. Uh, and I never know whether she went there or not. She certainly never talked about it, you know. She just cried. 20 years later, she just cried. And that about says it all. She had very good friends, didn't she? I think you say in the book, Nulo Fuelon. She spoke to her a lot. Yeah. And Nell McCafferty. Yeah. Could she talk to them, do you think? Maybe, was it easier for her to talk to them? No. No. I don't think so. You know. Uh, She might have. I don't know, because uh, she and Nulo walked the mountains every second day, you know, and um, she might have... I just don't think she did. I think she locked it away in a closet somewhere deep in her heart. And that was hers to carry. What about yourself? How do you deal with something like that? I mean... Well, I had this thing that I... Her grave is about 100 yards from the house. And... uh, and I drive by it every day. And so I can always shout, hello, Sinead, how are you today? And what's happening? And I talk about whatever I'm doing. And I don't know when it started or how it started, but that's what I used to do. And then Marion is buried beside her, and uh, I just don't talk. Somehow, I'm closed out. I can't answer that. I would love to, but I I just don't know the answer. Is it because they're back together or something? I have explored it endlessly, (laughs) you know. Why wouldn't I talk to the two people I love, you know? They're beside me. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. There could be a bit of that, too. Maybe I'm annoyed because they left. The rules are I'm supposed to die first, you know. It didn't work out that way, you know. I just don't know. But from what was a pleasure, uh, talking to my daughter, stupid stuff, has now become some sort of a burden. This bit I don't understand either. The other thing is about your book. I actually started to read it on a plane last Friday to Amsterdam. My husband said I literally didn't take my head out of the book for the entire journey. And I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if I'd like it. It is a compelling book. And part of the reason is your honesty. And at one stage, midway through, I turned to another chapter and almost your first line is saying, you've probably reckoned this by now but I'm an alcoholic. And I actually hadn't worked that out. Yeah. But even the f- way you say that, I think there'll be people listening this morning who have issues with the demon drink. Yeah. Why did you decide to be so honest and say you're an alcoholic? And when did you discover you were an alcoholic? I think, I can't be sure of this. I graduated from being a heavy drinker. I was in business. It was the culture at the time. And you sort of say to yourself, this probably isn't right, you know, but you get out with it. It was Marion who said it to me. She said, you know, you're an alcoholic. She then 
done a lot of programmes on it, you know. And I, of course, defended and said, tell me why. We all drink together, you know. And she went through what the vital signs are and so on. And she said, from my perspective, and she didn't put a truth in it, she said, you go on down to Mayo and drink yourself to death. But I prefer I didn't hang around while you were dying, you know. And alcoholism is a disease for life. You know, I haven't had a drink in 30-odd years, and I hope never to have one. But I didn't have a drink today, and it's unlikely I'll have one tomorrow. Well, we'll see tomorrow, you know. Uh, But it forced me into having a look at myself and saying, who are you? What do you stand for? It was mixed up in a whole series of things. Uh, I'm a bookworm. I read everything. And when I was... 15, which is what, 1950, uh, I decided I was going to be an existentialist. I wasn't fully sure what an existentialist was. I think roughly described nowadays as a dropout. Uh, My dad wanted me to be a scientist and my mother wanted me to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a layabout. I won on that particular one, you know. Uh, but I was an existentialist. I was always searching for some purpose in my life. I could see absolutely no purpose, you know. I mean, if I dropped dead tomorrow or yesterday, the world doesn't stop spinning around and nothing seems to change much, you know, except me. Uh, so what was the point of all this? And I've never found an answer. I still ask the question, you know. And there are certain satisfactions in doing good and being part of humanity that tries to do something good and living as reasonable a life as you can after that. But I still don't see much purpose in my life. Except for love and your children and your grandchildren. You write about how great you are as a grandfather. those those are nice things, but you know... (laughs) But when you look at this humanity, I lived in a lot of war zones and I spent a lot of time in Africa. And you say, what, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this society, you know? And yet you do like this country because before we came oh, to yeah. studio, you told me you think that things have improved so much here in our lifetime. Yeah. From, say, your parents' lifetime. Yeah. Everything's much better. You were talking about the poverty that existed yeah. in the past. I think, uh, is that fellow the mass had, what you call him, the economist? T.K. Whitaker. Yeah. Who went to him, it is alleged, and said, you think you have freedom, you haven't. You have nothing. You've got to industrialise, you've got to do all these things, which we did. And everyone thinks it happens overnight. It doesn't, it's taken three generations, you know. We've turned this into a wonderful country. And you've also got great friends, John, because I noted in your book, you spoke about, obviously, AA is private, but on the day of Marion's funeral, obviously, yeah. a lot of people worried were worried that you would fall off the wagon. Yeah. But your great friends from AA, yeah. I think they met you that evening. Oh, yeah. They? I went to AA that evening. Of Marion's funeral. Yeah. I, um, I couldn't think of anything else to do, you know. A few of them were drinking a bit, uh, which is fair enough. And uh, there's a lot of drink around the house. And uh, 
we'd only be talking about Marion. And I thought, you know, you're in dangerous territory here. And I went down and I shared it in the AA rooms. You and Marion, many people may not know this, of course, set up an extraordinary charity in Africa where I think you actually gave about 50,000 children a life they may not have. But to shortcut it, tell us about recently when you were in the Beacon and a nurse spoke to you because it almost tells the great charity you and Marion did. Well, I I was in for a test for my cancer in the Beacon and this black woman was walking down the corridor and she stopped in the middle of the corridor and she said, John. And I looked at her and said, yeah. I said, say something else to me so I can identify you. She started to talk and I said, you're South African. And I said, my guess is you're from Kailicha which is a slum outside Cape Town, where there's either a million or two million people and nobody knows. And she said, yeah, I saw yourself and your wife coming. I was a child. And she got into one of the orphanages or hospices rebuilt there and clearly got to school and came through the whole system. It's an amazing legacy for you and Marion that you did set up all of those. Another thing I notice as we come towards the end, John, is... Do you ever regret not saying to Marion that you shouldn't have gone on that final trip? Because you say here yeah. that both she and you yeah. knew she wasn't well at that moment. Yeah. No. I regret she died, you know. But she had this thing about doctors, you know. Uh, didn't like them a lot. And I was going out to say a few words at a big Muslim wedding for a friend of mine's son uh, who couldn't go. And she said, I'm going with you. And I said, you know, it'll be the death of you. You're far away from all the, the things you need. And uh, I don't know if you we take the chance. We flew home on a Sunday, and on Monday she was dead. She knew she was doing a very silly thing, I think. Quite a dangerous thing, but uh, I remember Sinead um, was opening a parcel in the hall. This is your little nine-year-old daughter who died. And um, she was opening this parcel and there was a queen wasp on the floor as you do in autumn and it gave her a terrible sting on the bottom and she let a yelp out of her and was holding her bottom and trying to open the parcel, you know. And I said, does it hurt, you know? And she said, it does. And she said, I'm just too busy to cry. And uh, Fnucan was always too busy to cry. You know, it's as simple as that. Well, can I just say, John Clark, your book, Fnucan and Me, My Life with Marion, it's published by Gill Books. I think if she was alive, John... She'd be incredibly proud of you in this book. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. No, I really mean that. Yeah. Thank you, John. And mind yourself. I will. I need 40 years for my garden. (laughs) Great. A bit tight. You're going to get to it. (laughs) Okay, right. (laughs) Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure. Mind yourself. Take care. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. 
We got so much reaction to John Clark marrying Finucane's husband about his memoir. I'm just going to bring you some of them. Anne and Loud says, listening to Marion at weekends after my husband passed away helped me get through many lonely times. Great memories of her. I'm looking forward to reading John's book. Another says, what a wonderfully honest, interesting man. Jer says, powerful interview and honest man. Another Paul in the Liberty said, what an amazing interview. Marcella goes, hi Miriam. I really hope that John does an audio book of Finucane and me. I could listen to his voice all day. I totally agree with that. One more. Joe says, thank you for making my day with the interview with Marion Finucane's husband, John. It was very special and open. And just for anyone who wants to read extracts, even if you don't buy the book, which you should, in today's Sunday Independent, they have great extracts from John's book.